the DNF Blackboard's about about entrepreneurs and about wild, big visions and crazy dreams. Uh, as I like to say to Nikki, it's, it's all about investing in the possibility, not the probability. That's Mike Cannon-Brooks, the co-founder of Atlassian, and this is Wild Hearts. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. We've just announced our fourth fund of $500 million. And so today, we're going to be doing a deep dive into Blackbird's founding story. The very first believer in Blackbird was Mike Cannon-Brooks, the co-founder and co-CEO of Atlassian. In this episode, we'll unpack what excites him about the startup ecosystem in Australia and the culture he hopes to help Blackbird build upon. Hunter Somerville, general partner at Greenspring Associates, would then explain his belief in ANZ's new wave of homegrown talent building world-class companies, and the importance of trusted relationships between founders and investors when making venture fund decisions. But first, I'll be talking with Nikki Shavak and Rick Baker, co-founders and partners at Blackbird. We'll cover Blackbird's origin story, our investment philosophy, and what the future holds for Blackbird's founders, the team, and its investors. Now it's time to hear from the Blackbird founders, Rick and Nikki, to expand on the awesome announcement. Do you want to tell us what that announcement was? We've uh, just closed on a new fund, on a new $500 million of capital to invest into great Aussie and New Zealand startups. So pretty uh, excited about that. Um, obviously, very you know, it's a it's a really great um, pool of capital to have at a time when we think there's going to be some fantastic investments coming up. So. Super excited, um, you know, a huge thank you to all of, the, all of our investors who have done a lot of work to, uh, to make these investments through a very difficult period that we've just been through. I think it's important to also um, uh, recognize that even though the funds we are raising perhaps are going up in size, our desire to invest um, in the beginning is going earlier and earlier. So every first investment we make at Blackbird, we want it to be in a company that ideally um, uh, you know, is before revenue, before a product. We want to establish again that relationship right at the beginning. Um, the increased amount of money though um, is in recognition of the types of company that are getting built in Australia and the scopes uh, of their opportunity uh, to become very, very large companies. And we want to be um, a part of the, you know, the whole journey of those companies. So invest right at the beginning invest hundreds of thousands of dollars or one or two million dollars in the in the beginning um, but you want to invest hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions of dollars per company um, for those uh, for those special outlier companies that succeed on a, a sort of world scale I think also when we talked about Aussie investors coming in and, and the Aussie um, you know superannuation um, system is a just a, a fabulous um, you know potential investor in into venture capital in the long term but um, really great to have three international investors joining us, uh, institutional uh, investors joining us. And I think that's a, a little bit of vindication that we talk about quite a bit, which is that Australia is sort of getting on the, on the radar of the global investment community as a, as a place where you can build great companies. What do you think Superfunds resonated with the most 
about venture given it's, it's still very new in Australia. So I think we are, we are at last starting to get to the stage where this sort of new wave of Aussie venture, which kind of started eight or nine years ago, has, is starting to prove the, the sorts of returns that institutional investors are looking for in order to uh, reward them for the illiquidity and risk that they're taking in venture capital. And so you know, we're fortunate our, our track record is looking really good. And I think um, generally in Australia, the, the, the venture track records are starting to prove themselves out. Obviously being able to return a significant amount of capital is three and a half times now that we've returned, three and a half times the whole fund of the first fund that we've, we've returned. Um, shows that we can turn investments and paper profits into into real uh, into you know uh, distributions into into money. Uh, yeah, that makes them comfortable that that what they're what they're investing in here is is has a really good chance of creating these world class returns. I think the other thing that that is important to mention that no one really mentions about venture capital is that there's a whole load of operations compliance legal that goes on and um, a, a huge shout out to our ops team here at Blackbird, which we've been putting a lot of effort into building over the last couple of years. Um, and the amount of operational due diligence that the institutions do now is, is quite amazing and, and pretty intense. And uh, that's a, you know something that's really important and that no one really kind of hears about it in venture, but the ability to make these investments successfully, um, to you know, deal with all the regulatory uh, compliance stuff, and then make sure we do it accurately every time. We do all our accounting and uh, valuation super accurately. You know, that's super important for, for institutional investors as well. You have mentioned two massive changes, one being super funds and also the due diligence side. Have there been other many other differences between what it was like raising Fund 1 versus Fund 4? Well, it's a very different uh, style of fundraise. Um, fund 1 was, was long and lots of meetings with lots of different people. I'd say Fund 4 was a shorter period, a fewer number of people that we spoke to, but much more intense, um, obviously, from each of the institutions and a lot of them have advisors as well so you're kind of doing a doing it twice for each investor once with their advisor and once with the their actual in-house team so i think it's gone from lots of quick meetings in the first ones to a smaller number but really intense uh, deep dive uh, kind of situations uh, you know we always now start with our track record um, when we when we talk about investing it's usually our first or second slide is sort of that that first minute or so, you kind of create this this credibility by the fact that you've delivered good returns. Whereas back in the early days, it was all about the story. It was almost like a startup pitch. It was like problem solution, and why were the people to do it? Um, whereas now, it's it's much more built around the track record and the companies and the, and the way we invest. And I would I would almost um, comment on sort of the different questions per fund. Um, you know, literally in fund one, it was. Is this worth doing at all? Um, uh, is it lastly in a random result? Um, and then in fund two, I think it was great. You can invest in the seed round, um, but you know now that some companies look promising, will you be shunted aside and you know pass it over to the Silicon Valley funds? And I think we proved out that with the uh, follow-on fund and, and subsequent follow-on funds. 
then I think in 2018, it's like, well, it's all on paper. Um, is it actually real? And I think that's been proven out. And then I would say the fun four question is, well, can you build out a team of people to do it um, rather than one or two people doing it? And so there's always a question um, uh, for each fund and um, there's always uncertainty in the future, but that's, um, I would say, how it's roughly been divided up against um, all the funds. Simming out a little bit, how do you think the venture community has changed in the last eight or so years? You know, on a, on a global basis, I think the phenomenon has been that, that ventures just got global in, in that it used to be Silicon Valley, Boston, maybe Austin, Texas, a few other places in the US. And then there was this sort of beginnings of it in China, a little bit in India, and then the sort of it fell away. But in the last, you know, seven or eight years, it's really been a global phenomenon in that venture has grown up in, in most um, regions of the world. And that's off the back, I think, of innovation becoming more accessible. Sure, Silicon Valley will always be this mecca of innovation and startups. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think we'll take that mantle away from it. But what's become clear is you can build great companies anywhere in the world. And where that's happened, capital has been attracted to those areas and, and people have set up VC firms uh, like we have in Australia. I think also two things changed. One was um, the knowledge on how to build a startup. You didn't need to learn through coffee shops and so it wasn't localized. You could learn on the internet through blogs and later podcasts and, and, and so on. Um, so anyone around the world very quickly learned how to build um, companies at the very beginning. And then the second um, thing is AWS used to need permission to start. So you needed to move to um, Silicon Valley and you needed someone else to say yes before you could start. You needed to buy the Sun Microsystems um, servers and the Oracle databases and the rack space that wherever. And um, you needed just a couple million dollars to start and AWS you needed zero to start. The startup program gave you money to spend um, in the initial stages. So that just meant that you didn't need permission to start. So you started wherever you were and that could be Sydney or Melbourne or it could be anywhere in the world. And so um, I think the sort of globalization of the learning, the globalization of um, not needing permission to start. So you just started wherever you were with AWS um, allowed a magnitude order, um, order of magnitude um, higher uh, uh, rate of participation in, in entrepreneurship. The story I have on that is I remember meeting a early days meeting an enterprise SaaS company who had about five customers and they were doing some pretty serious enterprise SaaS and I got to the point of asking them how much money they'd raised and they said, oh, you know, or how much money they'd spent because they hadn't raised any money in building the business and they said, oh, two and a half and I said, what, million? And they went, no, thousand. And that was a real kind of change, right? That you can build an enterprise uh, SaaS company with such a small amount of capital. I think the ambition is infectious and ambition is almost a sense of competitiveness of if they see um, uh, an accomplishment or a success story, um, it gives them confidence to be even more ambitious than that um, existing success story. So certainly um, uh, Australia, you know, never would have said it could create Google or Facebook and be less ambitious. And I just think Atlassian's worth more than NAB, Canva's, you know, the best private software company in the world. Um, uh, you know, Zooks was founded by 
a guy who had an animation studio in Melbourne, no automotive experience and no technology um, startup experience. And he just dared to um, uh, have that level of ambition. And what an incredible journey um, uh, Zooks uh, went on after he, he decided, Tim decided to found the company. So I think, um, you know, I'm incredibly optimistic that the bar of ambition is being raised um, every single year and in the future, um, you know, Australia will produce its um, share of gold medal winners like um, Google and Amazon and Tencent and um, so on. So um, uh, I think ambition is, is infectious. So how do you kind of see the team being built out um, given that's the key question they want to know. Yeah, well, this one has been something that we have thought very deeply about. So I think there um, is great desire to build a great company, just like the companies that we've been able to be um, a part of through um, as, as an investor. And um, if you think about the venture capital world, um, the management companies of VCs have been incredibly unambitious. So they've said, hey, we want to invest in the most ambitious people in the world. And they've set up firms that are sort of like suburban accounting firms. There's a few partners and a few support staff, and that's it. Um, and so what we really wanted to do uh, with Blackbird is to build out a great team and to build out products as well as services. So you can sort of start to see um, the beginnings of that with uh, the Startmate Fellowship, which is allowing uh, you know some of the smartest people in Australia to transition their careers into startups. We hope to help hundreds of people do that um, over the, the next year or so. Um, and we wanna build, um, again, as Rick said, every part of Blackbird into this world-class um, uh, standard. And so I think um, the incredibly exciting thing um, uh, that, that um, wakes me up every morning um, with a sense of joy is if the first wave of pride was seeing the company succeed, investing in a few founders and then turning up a few years later and realizing what a special company they've created. If the second wave of pride was seeing Nick and Sam succeed um, as uh, uh, in their own investment careers, I think this sort of third wave is seeing every um, person within Blackbird um, sort of rise in their careers through um, uh, you know, the company that we're creating here. And so uh, I would hope that we can create um, one of the best companies um, in Australia to work for and to, again, have ambition around not just the companies we invest in, but how we build Blackbird itself. You've added Nick Rocker and Samantha Wong to the partnership. How did you both come to the decision that you would decide to expand the team? We started off, when we first started Blackbird, we both, I think, had agreed that we wanted to hire as few people as possible. We wanted to be the Craigslist of venture capital. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and Sam was our very first uh, hire and uh, came in to, to run the ops side of our business and was just fantastic and ended up being very involved in all the investments we were making as well and, and was sort of a natural um, next step was to become a partner. and. Nick, we backed uh, his company and uh, I think he was the second or third investment we ever made, um, was in his company and he sold that and then worked at uh, MyFitnessPal and Under Armour over in the US. But he, he was really interested in Startmate and took on the mantle of running Startmate in the US and then moved back to Australia and ran Startmate in Australia. And so we got to know him really well. And again, it seems like a natural step for Nick to join us in the, as a partner as well. Um, but at a point, Nikki and I realized that if we wanted to create a world-class firm, 
we needed to find really great people to join us on the journey. I think also um, it's important who Sam and Nick were not. Um, you know, they weren't MBA graduates uh, from Stanford. They didn't, you know, uh, <laughs> graduate from central casting of Silicon Valley. Um, we have sort of a, uh, a mantra around Blackbird of the hungry, not the proven. And I just think that type of person is the, the, the type of person like in startups that it goes on to achieve something original and unique. And I think uh, people that are sort of learning the language um, in some cookie cutter way, um, there's just something maybe predictably ordinary about it um, versus the unpredictably magical about someone who doesn't come from central casting and who has, again, that hunger and that unique viewpoint. And, um, uh, you know, this is the vehicle for their life's work um, uh, as well. It's not, you know, some semi-retirement um, uh, <laughs> gradual sort of fading into the background. It's, um, it's the way that they want to, um, you know, leave their mark on the world. A little bit before the decision to hire Sam, I believe, was the decision to create a follow-on fund to keep investing in the best companies in the 2012 fund. I often think that was one of the best decisions Blackbird has made. Can you run us through how you came to that decision and what that has meant for Blackbird? Well, I think if you just look at the way that the venture capital industry is currently structured and it makes no sense at all. So the venture capital industry is structured around the round that a company raises rather than the company itself. You have a seed fund that invests in seed rounds. You have a series A fund that invests in series A rounds. You have a growth fund that invests in growth rounds. And from the point of view of um, investing right at the beginning, um, obviously in, in a seed fund um, and in your first fund, you're probably not gonna be able to raise that amount of money if you don't have the track record, like Rick and I did not have a track record when we started um, Blackbird. But if you invest in a company and it becomes successful, why would you deliberately not invest it um, in the company after you knew it was successful? And so that never made sense to us at all. Um, I think the other uh, sort of lesson of venture capital is uh, the sort of power law returns um, of the business that is, you might invest in 20 to 25 companies in a fund, but usually one or two of those companies will account for the majority of value. Um, and so people know that, they recognize that, but they don't actually respond to that. And I think um, the decision to create the follow-on fund um, was really in recognition that there will be a few outstanding outlier companies that will be you know, the most valuable companies in the world. We want companies to be worth hundreds of billions of dollars over a period of uh, many decades. And um, I think the decision of the follow-on fund really is, it's about the companies, it's about the relationships that we have with companies. Um, we'll invest really, really early, we'll believe in someone um, right at the beginning before they uh, have a product or before they have revenue. But we wanna build a great relationship, we wanna build a courtside seat to these great stories. And we wanna invest hundreds of millions of dollars in billions of dollars per company that passes that sort of um, uh, you know, uh, bar of excellence. And so, um, when we hear, when I hear um, people from Silicon Valley sort of proudly say that you know we're a craft business and we only invest in the seed round and everything else is so different, it just it has never made sense from when um, we've dealt with the companies and the relationships you build with them, the insights you gather about their character, about the market, about the product. Um, that is that is the the golden piece of information that no one else has, and um, uh, you know why would you not want to invest more money? It doesn't cost you any more time. You're spending time with the company anyway. Um, it's 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 the best opportunity in the world. It's turned out to be a great uh, returning strategy, right? The returns from the follow-on funds have been awesome, and that's really just because we've been filtering them down. We invest in a whole lot of companies that 
at seed and Series A stage in the in the core fund, and they get in really early, and so they make these huge multiples. But then we get to filter right down to the top, like ten picks or so out of our whole portfolio, and we have you know 65 companies in the portfolio. We get to pick just the top ten or so to put into the follow-on fund, and. It's been a great strategy. We know the companies really well by then, as Nikki said, and um, we're able to really invest heavily in the ones that we really love. Silicon Valley built an ecosystem on funds that invest in rounds. Um, Canva now, we've invested across a, a series of funds. Um, Blackbird's earned 14% in Canva. Um, they had many, many investors at the earliest stage with rounds or, or funds that invest in rounds, how is Blackbird able to compete and earn the trust of the business? It's just a really simple answer. We built a really good relationship with the, with the founders. And we did this simply by being supportive, by doing what we said we'd do, sticking by our promises, um, by helping them out along the way, by introducing them to some of their early employees, by convincing other employees to join them, by providing good introductions to them, by encouraging them, by helping them out, you know, helping them work through uh, some questions they might have. But when it comes down to it, really, it's, it's just about you know, building the relationship. And I think sort of um, if you invest right at the beginning, before there's a product and before there's revenue, it's almost akin to sort of, um, if you think, you know, back to high school, there's always a teacher that um, left a certain mark on you or there's someone who took a chance on you early in your career and there's that special place to begin a relationship if you believe in someone right at the beginning. Um, and uh, as Rick said, you know, that's the starting point to building a great relationship. And then if you do, you know, that, you know, outcompetes the brands of Silicon Valley and the, um, the latest age investors with the sort of um, prestige logos and so on. Um, and so um, I think it's a very simple statement, but it's very, very hard to do. And um, uh, uh, you know, it's something that you know, every single day we care about at Blackbird. You once said to me that Zooks was one of the, the best honeypots of, of what you've learned in your career. Um, what were some of the highlights at Zooks? I think through Zooks um, in particular, um, I came to the conclusion that um, the greater your ambition, the greater chance of success you have. So the more audacious you are, the more um, uh, uh, sort of fundamental um, a problem that you wanted to address, um, the more likely it was that you could attract the best people in the world to work for you. And once they did join the company, they would do the best work of their lives and you could attract the best investors in, in the world and at the best valuations and um, the best partners in the world to work with you very quickly. And even in the case of Zooks, governments to change the laws to make what you wanted to do legal. Um, uh, uh, and so this sort of sense of um, uh, a grand mission or a grand ambition um, being a honeypot for the best people in the world, whether it's employees, investors, partners, government, um, or so on. Um, and I just, uh, you know, the audaciousness um, of it, uh, how they built the company, um, I think how Zooks uh, raised capital and almost pioneered um, a lot of the rounds of capital that have come together. One other sort of question, uh, one other answer to your earlier question around how uh, venture has changed, Silicon Valley has changed. Eight years ago, it was still common for funds to have 
sort of $300 million fund. So, you know, you, you could at best do $20 million rounds um, uh, out of the sort of Silicon Valley ecosystem. Well, you know, those funds have raised much larger funds um, uh, such that now you can do 50 or $100 million rounds. The sort of uh, those same funds have raised growth funds and um, other uh, public market investors like Tiger and KOTU and so on. Um, other uh, types of investors make it possible to do hundreds of millions of dollars um, uh, for, for each round. And so I think, um, again, sort of that sense of the types of problems you can solve um, with technology uh, and uh, that sort of ambition as a honeypot um, is, is probably the lesson I've learned the most from Six. At the beginning, you also said no exits. How has that evolved? Well, we always had this theory that you needed to hold investments for a long time to create the kinds of returns that we wanted. And, you know, it's a nice safe adage to say you don't go broke by taking a profit. And uh, a lot of investors like to you know, see a, an investment go up by a certain percentage and then start selling down that investment. We don't think that works in venture capital. And the reason it doesn't work is you need these really big outcomes to drive most of the returns in a fund. And you need your fund to be, your strategy to be highly fault tolerant, which means, you know, a bunch of losses, but you need these really big winners. So if you sell them too early, that's the surest way not to get a really big outcome. Mm -hmm. And I think in the early days of Blackbird, we were sort of frustrated about these constant questions from investors, so people investing in, in our fund, um, questions from other venture investors to companies uh, and and questions um, and founders coming in and pitching us and their second last slide of their pitch deck was going to was you know I'm going to sell to Google in two years time for X million dollars and we got sort of frustrated by that and decided that we didn't you know it was clear to us we didn't we didn't like that we didn't like when a, it was like a, a red cross against a founder when they came in and pitched an exit to us we don't think you you have any better chance of selling to google by trying to sell to google mm. we also think that the hard part of this business is building a really great it's finding investing in and helping build really great businesses it's not selling a great business like a great business becomes liquid because people because it is a great business. And so we, there was a, we actually coined the term because there was this old sort of green and white exit sign light that was sitting in our old office. I think someone had swapped over the exit sign at one stage and just left the old, the old light there. And um, we got a, uh, a marker pen and wrote no next to the, the word exit. In fact, the, the light's still sitting in our office here today. And so it became this bit of a catch cry to us, no exits. And, Obviously that's amusing and we still say it to, uh, to our investors and to super funds who sort of, you know, their eyes light up and they, they sort of look at us strangely when we first say it. But when we explain it, what, you know, what it means is we, we don't want people who are trying to create exits. We want people who are doing their life's work who really, really want to build a big business. And they're the sorts of people who are going to create the success and then the eventual exits when we need them in 10 or 12 years time that will drive great returns. These funds have 10 years as their lifetime. How do you remove that idea and how does exits fit into that? So venture capital is currently structured around um, these 10-year vehicles. So you raise a fund, it lasts for 10 years, you need to invest the money in the first couple of years and then um, you've got sort of 10 years to wrap it up. Although technically you sort of um, have the option of two one-year extensions to that. Um, 
I think the answer, um, or at least the, the ambition for Blackbird is to be a owner of the special companies over a lifetime. And a lifetime is, or a career time is probably 30 to 40 years, it's not um, 10 years. So how do you um, uh, satisfy the expectations of the 10 year vehicle with that sort of wider mission of how do you own companies for a long time? Obviously, um, companies can, can can transition to the public market you can um, think about uh, different structures like permanent capital vehicles um, i think also what has uh, really changed in the last couple years um, we did a uh, a transaction that is an example of this market um, last year in what's called um, a gp-led secondary which is a term where um, there is an existing fund portfolio and you create a new fund um, that you also manage. So from the company's point of view, Blackbird owns X percent before, and then after Blackbird owns X percent still. So you maintain your board seat, you maintain all of your investor rights, you maintain the relationship um, that you have with the company. From the investor experience though, um, you allow new incoming investors. In this case, it was uh, an institutional um, investor in the US called Stepstone that led the transaction alongside um, Hester, which is a local superannuation fund. Um, and you allow the uh, the LPs or the investors in that first fund to choose um, to take some money off the table, to leave the majority of um, uh, capital they have in the companies in the ground, and you allow them sort of this choice of um, uh, take a little bit off the table, leave it all, all on the table, um, uh, hop all off the train. And so I think uh, the secondaries market will offer these sort of creative solutions where um, you want the discipline of some fixed amount of time that's not that's a lot shorter than 30 years because I think you need accountability um, on a shorter time frame. But you have these sort of checkpoints um, where your investors are allowed to uh, choose to um, uh, continue along the journey, to step off the train, to um, have some sort of mix um, in between. So I think the use of the secondaries market, um, I think uh, public companies um, and earning the right to own companies um, through their public life rather than just through their private life. I think all of these are uh, ways in, in the future that Blackbird can um, uh, fulfill the mission of being a lifetime owner of a company like Canva rather than um, limited to this sort of shorter period of 10 years. And I want to look forward now. So there was obviously a huge announcement today. Given now that we've raised the fund during COVID, uh, how do you think the opportunity looks? Do you think now is a good time for a founder to be starting a business? Uh, how does the world look from their eyes? I'd say a couple of things. One is that we thought there would be a downturn, but it doesn't look like there was a downturn or there's maybe a downturn that lasted a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> if you track the share prices of technology companies, um, they are much higher than what they were before uh, COVID hit. Um, the multiples are much higher. Um, and so the technology world, um, in sort of the opposite of 99 where you know the, the the laser red dot was on the forehead of technology companies and um, directly uh, the, the sort of crash was about technology companies you have this very unique situation where um, it's a health crisis and um, a health crisis that has accelerated a lot of technology change and a lot of macro trends that were already playing out but are now rapidly uh, playing out so in terms of the technology industry um, it's almost uh, as if uh, you know the downturn has not happened. Of course, there could be a second wave. Of course, there could be um, a recognition that people have the situation um, all wrong. But particularly, we thought um, the downturn would be more pronounced and more evident than it has turned out um, to be. The second thing I would say is um, 
it's a great time not because something's high or low or valuations are high or low or capital is scarce or, or abundant, but startups fundamentally are about change. If the world is changing, then startups will succeed and startups will have this oxygen to develop and oxygen to, to grow. If nothing is changing, the incumbents will win and the startups won't, um, won't win. And so um, it would be hard to describe 2020 as uh, a world in which there is very little change. Um, so I think the fact that you know the world is changing, that startups are the ultimate vehicle of change, they're all of these thousands of kamikaze experiments to see if they succeed or fail um, and to adapt to this um, new world or to have a, a vision for a, uh, a, the future of the world and most of them will fail but because they are so um, adaptable and so um, by definition about uh, 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 reacting to, to changes in the world, I think um, now is a, a great time to do a startup. And bring it back to Australia, one of the great things about I think right now in the startup ecosystem in Australia is that we're kind of building this confidence as a as a as an ecosystem, and you know, off the back of companies like Canva, we're showing that you really can do it from here, and um, that is fantastic. And, and it's that confidence of founders to you know decide to quit their job, to embark upon an ambitious journey, to raise capital, to go hard at it. That's kind of the 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 the. The Tinder or the the the, um, the kindling that starts these big fires um, of you know successful ecosystems, and we're right at the point now in Australia where that's all happening, and uh, you know it's it's a really exciting time to be investing in startups here. So if I was a founder, what could I do to get in touch, or, or when when would be the right time to approach Blackbird? So I the way I like to articulate this now is I think the great time to get in touch with us is when you have a really good and clear image of what your product is going to be, how it fits in the world, so by the world I mean the market and the users, the potential customers, and how the world looks with your product in it. When you're at the stage where you can really well articulate that and you have worked out the pathway forward, to success and that path may be long and winding it may have technical risk it may have commercial risk but it is well thought out and eminently possible that's the time to come and see us you don't have to have a product uh, obviously it is harder to convince us to invest in you if you don't have a product and some early customers mm -hmm. and if you have that it's easier to convince us but if you can really articulate your mission well come and talk to us, find a way to get to us, get an introduction, it's always better to get an introduction. We do look at cold emails, but you know it's so much better if you can network into someone and find a way to us uh, and come and talk to us. You know, put together a, a, a quick pitch deck, put together, you know, get this idea you have uh, onto paper and get it in front of us. And don't think you're too early, you know, there there is, um, no room for any uh, investment professional at Blackbird to say that a company is too early for us. And so, um, uh, you know, we want to invest right at the beginning. Yeah. So Canva, we backed when it was an idea in Mel's head. Mm. Um, you know, Zooks was an idea in Tim's mind and some sketches. Uh, and those are companies where we invested, you know, 250K, 500K at the beginning and we um, in Canberra, we've invested over 150 mil into now. And uh, so 
if we like it, we'll back it, you know, no matter how early it is. Thank you both so much for coming on Wild Hearts. Thank, Thank you. you. Here is Mike Cannonbrooks, the co-CEO and co-founder of Atlassian. So much of Blackbird's founding thesis was driven by the fact that there wasn't any venture capital in Australia to support founders like you and Atlassian. I wanted to rewind back to 2004 and 2005. What was the startup financing ecosystem like and how did that impact your thinking about whether you should raise capital? Oh, sure. Look, it's, it's hard to imagine today, but it's a pretty different world back then. There were a couple of smaller venture firms around the 99, 2000, 2001 kind of period, but most of them were either out of business or running on fumes by, by 2004, 2005. And given the unsuccessful nature of those firms, obviously no new firms had arrived. Um, so there really was no local financing ecosystem back in 2004, 2005. There were no venture firms. I think what that made for Atlassian and our, if you look at our crop of companies that are around our age, um, it forced them to be quite resilient, right? More back to the Australian values of you had to make a business. We used to say we were customer funded, uh, which is the irony of the old way of businesses. You know, you, you sell stuff and you use that money to grow the business. But it certainly made a lot of those businesses tougher. It, it probably, you know, a lot of businesses didn't make it through that because that, that was really hard. Uh, so that that's sort of how I remember that period. Moving through time then, you were the first investor in Blackbird. What were the what were the earliest memories of doing being the first? Uh, I remember having... Uh, little Japanese place in the city. Um, not very good sushi, actually, but uh, it was close to our office and uh, having, having sushi with Nikki and a miso soup. And he said, I think I want to start a venture capital firm. You know, Startmate at the time was around and had gone well. And I'd been an investor in, in all of the Startmate uh, funds um, and, a, and a mentor and sort of helping those groups and had been over to San Francisco with them and all that sort of thing. You know, he said, here's, here's what I think. And at the time I was like, oh, really? You know, is the market big enough? Is there support for that, uh, et cetera? And so we talked and um, look, if anyone was going to crack that one open, it was, it was going to be Nikki and, and, you know, basically said pretty much yes on the spot to investing. You know, the thesis being Startmate was working well. You know, we, we had a good crop of companies out of Startmate 1 and I think Startmate 2 by then. The timeline might be hazy in my mind, but showing that there were companies growing and, and forming. Therefore, there was some scope for, a, a you know, a small at the time venture capital firm to, uh, to be able to support those entrepreneurs and those companies in Australia. Um, we also had uh, a generation of founders that were starting to have some form of exits or liquidity events or had, had, had made some money who would be willing to invest in that. So if you look at the original Blackbird investors in, in, in um, Blackbird 2012, most of them I think were actually individuals, not institutions, who had made money in technology and wanted to support support the industry and support venture firms, uh, which that thesis turned out to be true as well. That's where most of the money ended up coming from. What gave you the early conviction that Blackbird could be successful? What were the, the most important, important takeaways? Look, I wanted it to be successful for sure. I think, I think look, the, 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 the spirit of Nikki and, um, and Rick to do it, and, and the combination was, was quite good. The conviction that it was worth trying, I suppose, like most things in entrepreneurial world, you're not convicted it will be successful. You're sort of convicted it will be worth trying and there's a chance that it would be successful. And I think that's probably a fairer way of saying similar to Blackbird. It's been an entrepreneurial venture as a venture firm, uh, much like it invests in entrepreneurs. 
Um, there was definitely a market opportunity there. Um, for sure, there was some capital. For sure, there was um, businesses that could do better for having been invested in um, and, uh, and very passionate people, you know, getting together to try to do it. Um, that all sort of, for me, added up to something worth trying. Obviously, over the years, you've had your fair share with venture firms and, and, and different types of investment firms. I wanted to get your take on what you've actually learned from Blackbird. Look, I think, I mean, you, you, you called your podcast Wild Hearts, I think, which is, uh, which is very appropriate. I think there are, there are venture firms that are more about finance and there are venture firms that are more about entrepreneurs. It's a bit, it's a bit of a, a flavor equation. You know what I mean? There, there, are, there are software companies that are good at sales and marketing and software companies that are good at technology. You know, Google's built on the algorithm or, um, you know, Amazon's built on managing a single dollar and small margins and, and high scale and things like this. So that DNA comes through. The DNA of Blackboard's about, about entrepreneurs and about wild, big visions and crazy dreams. Uh, as I like to say to Nikki, it's, it's all about investing in the possibility, not the probability, right? Um, and that doesn't mean there aren't other good venture firms that do it more with a financial lens. It doesn't mean Blackbird is not financial. It's just what, what, what do you sort of put in your priority stack as most important? Um, I think the thing that's unique about Blackbird, the drive to sort of think what if, like what if this succeeds? What if this team? And that, that leads you to back earlier to back more unproven people to pack to back wilder ideas bigger ideas uh, and visions and um, and that, that makes it more exciting for me that makes it more uh, interesting um, it's not uh, as interesting for me that the sort of latter stage financing equation where it's more about a spreadsheet and a market size and things like this the the early stage stuff the really truly world-changing unique stuff is is the exciting parts you touched on it yeah, I love the idea of the, the flavor equation. And in part, you've touched on why Blackbird has its own unique approach. Can you sort of unpack a little bit more why you've decided to spend your capital and your time with us? I have, I've certainly, I think I'm pretty sure I've invested in every single fund. Um, I think I'm still the biggest individual investor, obviously, the big super funds and other things. It's a bit different. But finally, yes. Acquiesced to Nikki's requests to join the board yep. <laughs> a few years ago, um, and am now the the esteemed chairman uh, of the of the enterprise, <laughs> which I, I find somewhat amusing. Look, my the way I see my role there is about culture. Right, culture is incredibly important to Alassie, and it's incredibly important to all of my ventures. I think it's what what creates the the inner engine for for long term thinking. Right, you don't know how the future is going to unfold. One of the best tools you can take with you is a solid culture of hiring the right people, making solid decisions and, and moving into that always un, uncertain future. Um, you know, my role is to kin, continue to help build Blackbird into one of the great investment firms uh, in Australian history, right? And that's going to take culture that takes um, as as it changes, as it has already, right? It started very early stage. Now it's early, mid-stage, uh, occasionally latter stage. Um, uh, now we have the New Zealand fund, uh, follow-on fund and the first funds uh, um, and the core funds and, and uh, a growing team, you know, fantastic events like like Sunrise and, and podcasts and the community arm. Um, what is the culture that holds that together? What is the things that we will and won't do? What are the things that as we navigate the strategic landscape over the next decade of the firm, how does that continue to, to head in the right direction? Um, those are really exciting. Those are hard topics for me, right? Um, my, my role is not um, 
to choose investments, to to say yes or no to them uh, in, in a blackbird lens in any way. Uh, my, my role is around the internals of the firm and how to uh, make sure that that culture is is strong and and vibrant and um, you know and and sustainable over a long period of time. Right, uh, venture firms over multiple decades is a really really hard concept, uh, and it, it comes down at the end of the day to, to culture and to um, continuing that that spirit, the the, the risk appetite, um, the appetite to back unknown, unproven entrepreneurs to to do great things in the world. That is, um, you know, that's the culture that we want to we want to keep. We want to grow. What's the essence of culture that's been true at Atlassian, a company of thousands of people, and now at a company like Blackbird, which is obviously different in, in a whole range of different ways? You're going to get some things wrong. Some businesses don't work out right. That's that's the way venture works. But you want to be backing the ones that if it goes right, uh, you know, really changes the world. And that's, that's really hard because most of these businesses on day one are destined to fail, right? So if you ask the likely outcome and that's zero, then you'll never do anything. So that's, that's culturally, it's a really, really important thing. Um, and that then gets to the other activities around, you know, Blackbird, which is sort of like, what if we created a community? What if we made... Um, these events, what parts of events aren't being served? How can we grow that, right? In terms of hiring, in terms of growing uh, the firm, that's I think that's incredibly important pillar of that uh, um, of that future, right? Uh, but it's it's not an easy one. It's not an easy one to define either. What are some of the best companies you've seen in Blackbird's portfolio? You've got obvious ones that are financially successful, and that's that's a good marker. Um, uh, firms that have grown, um, turned from an idea into a real product and then from a real product into a real business. There's a, a revenue line, there's a sustainability. Um, some of them have gotten to a level of a second or third set of, um, you know, integral sustainability, which is really important in terms of their second or third product is also successful and that has built the first product to be even bigger, that, that sort of roll-on effect you get with, um, with fast-gross companies. Um, I think some of the ones that uh, best is hard to define I like the ones where you see the the founder go on a real journey of of self discovery, but also self actualization. Sometimes founders, there's a a myth. I think the founders are very very confident, very um, you know visionary people. There's the mountain. There's a flag. I'm going to put on top of it. We'll just charge up the mountain, and it'll be you know that that's that's sort of all we need. Um, a lot of them are. It's a lot more hazy. There's clouds all over the mountain. We're not really sure where the top is. We're pretty sure there's a mountain there, but we're not exactly sure because we can't see it right now. We think we're heading in the right direction, but maybe we're heading down a valley rather than... It's a really complex world. And what that takes, I think, for founders is over time as they learn lots of skills they don't have at the start, hiring people, um, managing culture, managing difficult situations, managing different economic situations, products that don't work out, projects that don't work out, um, people that don't work out, um, that builds a sort of a, you know, that my favorite founders are the ones where you really see that personal growth in them, that, that toughness coming out, that ability, confidence, inner confidence, not outer confidence to, to navigate situations that they don't know about in their future as they continue to get through, you know, situations currently. You, you see that in some of the start make companies even over three months. Uh, but it's really, really gratifying to be on those journeys for multiple years um, and seeing, you know, uh, uh, people turn into these real leaders of, of these companies. That's, that's always the most 
um, most amazing part for me is there's a transition that happens that's uh, that's quite phenomenal. As they sort of unhatch over time, as Nikki might say. Unhatched, yeah, maybe, uh, or just hatched. Um, but the hatching part is early, right? It's uh, you've still got to, I don't know. Totally. Get out of the nest, get out of the tree, <laughs> learn to fly, learn to have your own, you know, nest or build a nest or whatever, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long journey. It's not, not simple. What do you think of the Australian startup ecosystem as it is now? Oh, look, we're in a great spot, I think. So it's vibrant, it's alive right now. It's, it's very exciting. We, you know, for sure we have uh, a lot of capital around that we didn't have before uh, of all types, you know, the, the super seed angel rounds all the way up to, to, you know, tens of millions of dollars investment rounds, um, companies going public, uh, locally, internationally. Um, we have uh, some larger acquisitions now. Financially, it's very exciting. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's the fuel, right? That's not the car, but that's, that's a little bit of the fuel. Talent-wise, uh, that's also very exciting. We have uh, people who've been in lots of different stages and sizes of, of larger growth companies who can then take those skills back to smaller startups. You also have multiple time startup founders. That's really important. People who maybe have tried a startup, it didn't work, but they learn, still learn a lot of lessons in a startup that doesn't work. And then, you know, they go to their second or third attempt. You know, Silicon Valley has a huge history of, of people's, you know, big, big idea being their second or third attempt, but they still wouldn't be successful without skills from some of those early, um, you know, uh, experiments that didn't work so well you know, it's becoming more recognized as a viable path for, you know, graduates, for, for young people, uh, which is great. Um, and you also have, at the same time, mature people joining the startup ecosystem broadly, which is fantastic, right? People who bring skills from other industries, other areas um, into, you know, starting, starting businesses. A myth that all founders are 21 is, is not really true. And some of the best founders are actually in their you know, mid forties and have a 20 year career behind them of really deep knowledge about an industry. And they see areas that can be changed or fixed or improved, but they've still got a, a real hunger and drive to go, go do something different um, and willing to take a big, you know, life chance. And, and that's often where the biggest growth comes from. So I, I think Australia's in a really good spot. Like internationally, we should remember we only have 25 million people in our population. So go compare us to other First world economies with, you know, per population, I think we're, we're um, you know, we're at least holding our own against the best, best parts of the world. And, um, uh, you know, I think, I think the best is yet to come. It feels like it, it gets stronger every year as a, as a whole ecosystem. And, um, and that's, that's all we can hope for. The best is yet to come. So if we fast forward five years into the future, what do you think Australia's tech ecosystem looks like look hopefully continues to be strong and continues to grow right um we'll have more uh, uh financing options around we'll hopefully have more successes of all of all types right um uh companies that are uh profitable and um and growing under their own steam companies that are raising larger and larger rounds of capital companies that are going public companies that are being acquired by uh, big tech or traditional players or, or, or other startups or whatever it is, um, all of those, if you think about an ecosystem, right, you need, you need birth, you need growth, you need death, you need like that, that cycle of, of life of companies um, to continue to, to flow through and be more and more vibrant with each, with each cycle. 
I think that's that's going to be required. I think we hopefully more globally connected than we are even today. Uh, we have really good connections with Silicon Valley today, but we can continue to deepen those pathways. Companies going across to America, um, talent talent coming back, companies spanning the Pacific Ocean. If you look at most of the large Australian technology companies that have grown up here, they end up having an American office of some kind. Um, and sometimes it's 60-40, sometimes it's 40-60, sometimes it's just sales and marketing, sometimes it's engineering. You know, you can have all different flavors, but um, continuing to deepen and, and broaden those pathways to and from America is obviously incredibly important, being the, the largest market, largest market for capital. Um, we have to continue to do that. Um, that's obviously challenging in the current environment. <laughs> Can't get on a plane and fly to San Francisco at the moment, so... Um, hopefully five years from now, that's, you know, that's back to being a possibility. But in the meantime, you know, take advantage of what this means. Life's on Zoom, whether you're in Texas or whether you're in Sydney. So, um, you know, maybe that gives us a small advantage in the short term. Um, I think that it's probably over the five-year time frame, more also ties to regional ecosystems like us. Um, New Zealand being an obvious close neighbour that has, a, again, a very first world economy, highly educated population, lots of, of technology possibility there. Um, obviously, you've got Japan and Singapore and, and some of the Southeast Asian markets around us, large population bases, really interesting markets for us to look at um, and to continue that uh, exchange of knowledge and ideas with. Um, and hopefully continuing to attract uh, more people from different industries and more experience, uh, right? Um, Board members, uh, I, I was a board member uh, for about nine years at an Australian startup called Tyro uh, that's now gone public, so one of our success stories. Um, and when I joined, I remember the board was, everybody was wearing a suit and this was a startup company, right? And at first I thought, man, where are all the people in T-shirts? Like we need, you know, we need more energy in this this board. And over time I thought, actually, no, it's, it's actually really good that all these, um, you know, captains of Australian industry, you know, people who had been uh, at great financial institutions and had, had um, been very successful at those institutions were on the board of a startup that was trying to be a financial institution like that. Actually, you need this, this combination of all, all parts of, uh, of the economy to be involved in a really vibrant tech ecosystem. So I hope that, that continues as well. I'm naturally positive, but I think it, it's, it's uh, the next five years will be really exciting. I completely agree. And on that note, thank you very much for coming on Wild Hearts, Mike. Thanks for having me, Mason. Anytime. Let's jump in with Hunter Somerville, general partner at Greenspring Associates. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's obviously a, a big time in Blackbird's life. But before we kind of kick into it, why don't you tell us a bit about Greenspring? Yeah, no, happy to. And, and thanks for having me. And very much appreciate the partnership we've built between Greenspring and Blackbird. Um, so, so totally my pleasure. Um, in regards to Greenspring, uh, we have been around for uh, about 20 years now. Uh, we exclusively focus on venture capital. We do so out of a variety of different strategies that include a, a fund of fund strategy. Uh, we're active direct investors, both on a primary and a secondary basis. And we also do a fair bit on the secondary side um, and will always remain focused exclusively on venture, but are 
interested in how we can think of, of different ways to, to prosecute it, um, all under the same team, which we continue to, to reinvest in and build. Um, now we're about 110 people in total, located mostly on the East Coast of the US, but, but also um, with folks in, in California, London, as well as in China. On the topic of being global, you're obviously based in the US. Can you Tell us how you first were involved in the Australian ecosystem and what's your relationship like with the Australian Future Fund? Uh, my partner Ashton had the foresight from the beginning to, to take a global stance. And so we've been investing um, you know, outside of the US almost since our infancy. Um, and I've been active in, in investing you know, in Europe, in Israel, in, in Asia, broadly defined and specific to Australia, we had the good fortune of, of uh, developing a partnership with the, the Future Fund, um, who has just been wonderful to work with from the very beginning uh, as they thought about what they wanted to do in U.S. venture and, and then also in Australia specifically. And so we've actively worked with them on, on direct and fund investing, uh, both uh, you know domestically and also internationally. Um, and They've been the type of partner to always think, you know, five to 10 years in advance, which is ultimately what's really important for this asset class. You can't be short-sighted and you need to think about where things are going and find a way to get an interesting exposure in that regard. And so that introduced us to, to the entrepreneurial and founder ecosystem in Australia, you know, spending more time with them and others in the region and just began to have an appreciation for, for some of the trends that we were seeing. Um, I think this is certainly a, a restart and there have been vintage years that have not been as successful for the Australian VC community. And that's probably jaded people to some degree, but I think, you know, everyone domestically and increasingly internationally are coming around to there being very interesting things going on. Um, I think, Atlassian certainly broke the mold and, you know, gave rise to, to people's, you know, beliefs and conviction that a company based in Australia could be successful there and could also globalize without op opening up, you know, tons of offices all over the place up front. Um, and that was certainly important, um, you know, to a globalization story um, for companies based in Australia. And, and since then, you know, with what we've seen with Canva, uh, which you all have obviously been intimately involved with from the beginning, companies like Safety Culture, you know, Zooks, et cetera, just really exciting stories of, of founders building big, meaty, meaningful businesses um, you know, in the ecosystem. And still not a lot of um, groups that I think are able to take advantage of that, are able to be that, that Series A lead um, and, you know, a, a really good halo effect. And I, I think there are a subset of groups like Blackbird that just have a very distinct advantage uh, in prosecuting early stage investing um, on the venture side. Can you talk about some of the learnings that you've taken since investing? Yeah, for me, um, I want to see incredible founders, uh, an ecosystem that supports that, um, whether it be from angels, seed investors, incubators, accelerators, I think all of which is the case here. So there are resources and infrastructure to, to get businesses going. There's the type of culture that fosters that and encourages it from the government side. And just in terms of the risk-taking nature and behavior of, of founders, you know, a, a lot of that ends up being cultural. Um, and so either that's fostered within the country or it isn't. Um, beyond that, 
you need capital sources to, to get these businesses going and, and eventually to scale them. And so we are always looking for tipping points where not only are there great you know, VCs that are domestically located, but also that the international venture community is taking notice and coming in and aggressively doing B and C rounds, at least to start. And you've seen that with all of these companies. It's not now one or two international VCs that are investing in companies in Australia. It's, it's a, a much larger number of folks that are taking, taking a notice, paying attention and coming in and allowing for scaling of these businesses. And, you know, you all and others can be growth providers as well, but it's nice to get international groups that are involved, can bring value post-investment in different regions, different ecosystems, and, and be further validators of the opportunity set. And then ultimately what fully reinforces a venture ecosystem is the ability to generate liquidity from these investments. And so you need folks that want to be M&A acquirers and, and see, uh, have a, a desire to come in and, 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 and do that through acquisitions or, or have financial buyers or folks on the private equity side that can serve as a liquidity avenue and increasingly domestic avenues to go public or the desire of uh, international exchanges to, to have companies go public on the, on the NASDAQ or, or the NYSE or, or somewhere else. Um, you need to be able to get capital back to the LPs that support these funds that invest in these companies. And when all of that comes together, then you have a viable ecosystem that is one you'd want exposure in. And it's not trivial. We've seen interesting venture ecosystems that are not able to prove the liquidity side and you get a lot of great write-ups and, and no return of capital. And, and ultimately all of that needs to be proven or the LPs can't continue to back the funds um, you know, as they raise new funds without ever getting money back. A few big winners emerging from the country um, because my belief is always that that shows that it's possible. Um, it, it gives hope to other founders, and it also leads to, to great tech talent spinning out and, and doing their own thing. Um, and that's ultimately what reinforces an ecosystem. And all of that you know, requires that there are a few great go-to venture firms to support these businesses from the very beginning. And so you began to see uh, the rise of a new guard in Australia, which was very different than some of the groups that were there historically. Um, and all of them were a little bit raw at the beginning and to your point with unrealized portfolios, but you just you saw groups that had backgrounds and pedigrees that were relevant, that had an operational element to them. And that was coupled with the rise of, of really good companies and, and high quality founders that wanted to, to strive for big outcomes and not be a, a 50 to $100 million domestic M&A exit. And when you have all of that coming together with the, an exciting new guard that's relevant with founders that want to take big swings and take on global challenges, that's sort of an inflection point where, where an allocator of capital like us wants to, to take a more serious look and, and, and potentially become more involved. And so that's what I, I would point to. And then all of that's reinforced by, by follow-on activity, um, you know, from other groups that we think highly of and that 
we appreciate um, that take an international point of view, um, you know, among our managers. Finally, why did you decide to partner with Blackbird? Uh, I guess the, the first time I, I met Rick and Nikki uh, and, and went into your old office, it very much felt like a startup itself. Um, you know, it was transparent. It was humble. Um, it felt like it had that kind of raw energy to it. Um, and there was no pretension and, and it was just singularly focused on, on backing and getting behind great tech businesses at an early stage. And everything that, that you all have done as a firm over time, you know, has that kind of authenticity to it in the, the conversations with founders and helping them grow and, and reinforcing the ecosystem itself. Um, and I think the, the, the people within the firm just come across very transparently um, and, you know, driven to, to do something great and not sort of biased by, by other, um, other, other people or other things they're seeing among their competitor set. They just want to do it their own way and, and delight founders. Um, and in references, we did getting to know the team and the stories and sourcing uh, angles behind it all. all. All of that came across. And to our discussion around pro rata and maintaining and building ownership and staying involved, that also came across strongly where it was clear that the, the founders appreciated, loved the partnership and would continue to provide ways to invest more over time, either through the core fund or, or the opportunity fund. And, you know, just really wanted Blackbird to stay involved across the journey, even into later stages. Well, Hunter, thank you so much for your time and, and, and sharing your perspective on Blackbird and the broader industry in Australia. No, t- totally my pleasure. We've, we've loved working uh, with the Blackbird team and with Future Fund over time and, and look forward to continuing. Thank you so much for joining us for episode seven of Wild Hearts. If you liked the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you gave us a five-star review and subscribe for more content that's released every fortnight. And finally, if you haven't checked out Giants Weekly, it's our new online event series where we interview top tech leaders. Join us every Tuesday, 8 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time for 30-minute Q&As. Thanks for joining me and I'll see you in a fortnight.